This episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast focuses on the topic of apologetics, or defending the faith. I'm joined today by Myron Penner. He's an Anglican priest from Canada, and we'll be discussing his new book called The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context. In the book, Penner describes various problems he sees with certain modern apologetic methods, but they might not be what you expect. He writes, Our passion for the truth is connected as much to the form our witness takes as it is to the content of that to which we witness. Excerpts like that reminded me of an October 2008 conference address by Elder Robert D. Hales. So before we get to Dr. Penner, I'll have you listen to this excerpt from Elder Hales' address, Christian Courage. Recently, a group of bright, faithful, young Latter-day Saints wrote down some of the most pressing questions on their minds. One sister asked, Why doesn't the Church defend itself more actively when accusations are made against it? To her inquiry, I would say that one of mortality's great tests comes when our beliefs or questions are criticized. In such moments, we may want to respond aggressively to put up your dukes. But these are important opportunities to step back, pray, and follow the Savior's example. Remember that Jesus himself was despised and rejected by the world. And in Lehi's dream, those coming to the Savior also endured mocking and pointing fingers. But when we respond to our accusers as the Savior did, we not only become more Christ-like, we invite others to feel His love and follow Him as well. To respond in a Christ-like way cannot be scripted or based on a formula. The Savior responded differently in every situation. When he was confronted by wicked King Herod, he remained silent. When he stood before Pilate, he bore a simple and powerful testimony of his divinity and purpose. Facing the money changers who were defiling the temple, he exercised his divine responsibility to preserve and protect that which was sacred. Lifted up upon a cross, He uttered the incomparable Christian response, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some people mistakenly think responses such as silence, meekness, forgiveness, and bearing humble testimony are passive or weak. But to love our enemies, to bless them that curse us, to do good to them that hate us, and pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us. That takes faith and strength, and most of all, Christian courage. All right, today I'm joined by uh, Myron Bradley Penner. Um, I think we should start off, Myron, if you'll um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I think that's a good way to begin. Sure. I'm a Canadian. I'm an ordained Anglican priest who is currently working in a non-denominational church down in Bolivia. Um, I'm from Canada, and I grew up in a conservative evangelical background. And yeah, so that that's generally who I am. Is there more you'd like to hear? Yes. So when did you um, become? When did you decide to become an Anglican priest? 
Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> because I don't really remember deciding it. I remember it kind of being decided, but I don't remember making the act of choice. Um, uh, my wife and I started going to an Anglican church when we were in Scotland, and I was doing uh, postgraduate work over there. Uh, just because we were looking for a church, and this one was one that we connected with, and it was foreign to both of our backgrounds. She's uh, Baptist. I would describe my background as sort of generic evangelical, Bible-believing, community church type background. And so we were there. We couldn't find a church, and we started going to this because we met some nice people there. And over time, we kind of developed, uh, I guess, a love for the liturgy and, and an appreciation for it and started going to the church on a regular basis. And then when we ended up back in Canada, we uh, started going to an Anglican church. And as that uh, happened, it came out that I had a PhD from a divinity school, and then they wanted me to be a, a lay preacher, and it just kind of went from there. Uh, and I didn't want to be a lay preacher, I should say, at first. Uh, I was opposed to that until it was pointed out to me that that's probably not a good thing for someone in my position to oppose. And then I said, well, I'll be open to it if that's what God is trying to tell you I should be doing. And they said, yeah, that's what we think. So anyways, it kind of happened by degrees. Um, pretty soon we didn't have a pastor at all. And I was doing services and that led to conversations mostly by others about my ordination and as a solution to a problem. And I guess at every stage I was willing to go along with it. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, so so it was sort of like a call for you then. You, you felt called to, to do oh, this. Oh, definitely. And it seems yeah. like for the little that I know of your ministry, it seems like you have also a pretty healthy emphasis on, on social justice issues. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's really important to me. And I think largely because my understanding of the gospel that was given to me growing up, at least the one that I understood, so I won't cast any stones, was that the gospel was primarily about us changing our minds about something and dealing with a sin problem that I had. So I had to deal with my sin problem. And it's not that that's not part of the gospel, but what it ends up being is a gospel that's just about words that are said. And, and I can still remember at one point formulating the thought in my mind that if the Bible was really, the gospel was really about the things that I thought it was about God could have done a much better job if he just sort of sent a giant billboard and put it in the sky <laughs> yeah. than sending his son. And I realized that that was really problematic and I needed to rethink that. And that's when I really began to think through concretely. And I mean, in terms of how I actually lived and thought together, uh, what it meant for the gospel to be incarnated. So to use the sort of, uh, category that's often used you know the gospel comes to us as word and deed mm -hmm. um, and so the social justice component to me is extremely important because i think of the gospel as something that is packaged in first and foremost in our practices not just our words and it sounds like you've traveled to different places in the world too right as part of this ministry yeah. is that related to that um yes definitely definitely i worked in in africa east africa mostly in Nairobi and um, Uganda, uh, doing water cleaning projects uh, for a year and a half. And I was on the board of that organization for about a year before that. Um, yeah, so yeah, I've been around. 
Another thing about uh, your ministries is your educational background. And in, in Mormonism, we have a lay ministry that doesn't typically focus on on uh, a priesthood who, who has to receive higher education in order to become a priest. So maybe you can right. tell the listeners a little bit about your educational background. Sure. Um, well, I have degrees actually from three different countries and different kinds of institutions. Uh, I, I have an associate of arts degree in, from a Bible college. And then I went on to university at, in uh, Canada, the University of Lethbridge, which is a public university, and did a double major in my undergraduate, phys ed and philosophy. I was going to be a phys ed teacher. And I, I was, what I discovered at university is I, that there was a place where all the questions I had about myself and my faith and meaning uh, there was a discipline that looked at those called philosophy and that not only was there a place that I could go to sort of search those out, but I actually seemed to have a kind of knack for, for that. Um, and from there I went on to do an MA in philosophy of religion at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And from there I went on to do a PhD in philosophical theology from the university new college the, the divinity school of the university of edinburgh in scotland so your comment about temperament's really interesting like i, I remember reading about c.s lewis and he he sort of started out in philosophy and then it, it just wasn't for him like temperamentally he, he couldn't right. he couldn't sustain it he became more into literature and then through his conversion to Christianity and so forth, but it's interesting. So you you sort of felt um, naturally inclined toward uh, toward philosophy in tandem with your theological views. Is that? Yeah, um, I did, but I I really did not feel at home in analytic philosophy, which is probably clear if you've read mm -hmm. the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apologetics, um, and uh, so I I was always having to operate in analytic space, if you will, and, and according to the categories and methods of analytic philosophy, but all my questions were deeply existential. And, and the very first philosophy course that I took was uh, existentialism and phenomenology, and that's what uh, got me started in philosophy. So then I got into all these other analytic classes, and I was like, what is this stuff? <laughs> and, I, and I kept constantly trying to pull in all the existential stuff. Yeah. Um, and and fortunately, there was a faculty, well, two faculty members who were who were both very capable and um, interested in those questions, and so I was able to sort of flourish in that. And then I, I finally was able to articulate to myself at some point in my graduate uh, philosophy career, where you know this distinction that I was trying to, uh, well, that I was this divide that I was was spanning and and sort of work out what that meant. Um, and then how to cope with that. So I think that's actually a, a really good segue into the book. You've recently published a book called The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context. Um, and and this this is a book that, that sort of speaks about um, contemporary Christian apologetics, um, and it has some bearing on Mormonism, but, but will focus mostly uh, on, on your arguments in terms of broader Christianity. But Let's let's start then by talking about the origins of the book project itself. Some of the practical things that uh, that led you to write this particular book. Sure, I mean, you can probably tell from my brief little story about myself that um, 
coming out of this background that I had, you know, conservative, evangelical, Christian, I think it would not be unfair to say fundamentalist mm -hmm. and quite sectarian. And I grew up in, you know, at a Bible college that was essentially a commune, started off more out of necessity than a kind of theological uh, set of values, but it was started by some farmers in their farms back in the 20s or yeah, early 20s mm -hmm. in Alberta. And there was nothing around. So people came, started coming there for Bible teaching and they had to provide for themselves. And it, it grew up into this communal space where they had a farm, they had a pasteurizing plant, they had a carpenter shop, they had, you know, all these different things and everybody took care of everybody else. So it was very insular in a lot of ways. Um, and out of that, I had a lot of anxiety around issues of faith and myself uh, and a lot of questions. And I remember formulating the question to myself when I was about 17 years old in grade 12, thinking, okay, well, you know, I guess in my mind, my 18th birthday was coming up and I was going to be, quote, unquote, a man and <laughs> an adult. And I, I remember it is really clearly just striking me. Well, it's time for you to decide whether this faith thing is really you or not, because I was it was absolutely clear to me that I was a Christian and believed what I did because it was the easiest thing to do. Mm -hmm. I mean. If I didn't, it would have been a very hard road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Very hard road. That was difficult. So anyways, I had all these questions. And so that, that's always been part of my, my spiritual quest, if you will. And um, along the way, uh, in that class that I mentioned, that first philosophy class, I, I encountered Soren Kierkegaard. And I remember thinking, reading him and going, that, that guy's got something. And I resonate with what he's talking about. And so I, I got into Soren Kierkegaard, but at the same time, I discovered the world of apologetics. And it just seemed so nice and neat and tidy. And I suddenly, all of the questions that I had, I found out, hey, there were people that had answers for these things. And they seemed so nice and pat, and they all fit together like a nice little puzzle. So I started sort of just unraveling that and, and breaking the puzzle apart and figuring out how it all went, fit together. And... At some point, I went, you know what, this is a nice puzzle, but I'm not sure it, it, it connects to my life in any particular way. Hmm. And that's, that's where I went back to Soren Kierkegaard. And, and along the way, I encountered, and I, I talk about this in the book, I encountered his little phrase written by one of his pseudonyms, Anticlimacus, whom he describes as, as a much better Christian than he is. Um, he says that um, whoever invented apologetics, Christian apologetics in Christendom, is a Judas number two whose betrayal, instead of with a kiss, is with stupidity. And so... <laughs> yeah, those, those are fighting words. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, in a sense, this, is, this book is my attempt to try and make sense of that. So apologetics that, in general, um, I think, I think what will be really useful then is to sort of zoom in on what we mean by that. And, and one thing that you do in the book is you refer to Stephen uh, Cowan. I believe that's how his name's pronounced. Do you know? Cohen, I think that Cowan. is, yeah. I've only met him once, but I think that's how he was pronounces his name. Yeah, Cowan. Stephen, Stephen Cowan, who who outlined five views on apologetics. So I'll sort of list these out and 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 have you uh, just briefly describe what they are. So there's first of all the the classical method. So so what's the classical method of apologetics? Well, the classical method is the one that uh, William Lane Craig likes to use, and self-describes as, as following. And, and in the classical method, it's, it's sometimes called a two-step method. You begin by 
establishing arguments for the general rationality of belief in a God that is theistic, so a God that is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and personal. And then you move from those general evidences, sometimes called natural theology, to evidences of the specific God of Christian theism, so the God revealed to us in I, Jesus Christ. I think that classical method has has sort of been absent in Mormonism. We Mormons tend to just begin from the proposition that God exists and this sort of thing. So the classical method, I don't think, has received a, um, a lot of attention in Mormonism. So that's classical. Uh, the second one is the evidential method. Yeah, and th this is a one-step method. And actually, uh, my uh, my thesis mentor for my MA thesis uh, is a representative of this method. He likes to argue directly for. Uh, the God of Christian theism. So one of the big, uh, I guess, uh, areas of evidence for this would be things like the resurrection. So you argue from the straight from the historicity of Jesus Christ's resurrection to his being God. So it's a one-step method. Instead of arguing for a general worldview that allows for there to be a God, you just go straight for the goods and say, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates as a piece of evidence that Jesus Christ is a particular kind of God, the, the God of Christian theism. So the evidence, though, as far, as far as evidence goes, it seems like that would be mostly based on on the biblical witness then, right? So it's mostly an evidential case based on, on written witness, is that? Well, I mean, that's not how Gary Habermas would put it. it it's, it's historical evidence, mm -hmm. which is evidence. So it, it would not be treating... The, the sacred texts as sacred, but treating them as evidentiary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So they, they would need corrupt. He's famous for his minimal facts argument, he calls it. So he can go from minimally accepted facts by, uh, you know, generally agreed upon by scholars of New Testament, Jesus studies, and so on and argue for for the historicity of the resurrection. Okay, so, cool. Okay, so and the yeah. third one is the cumulative case apologetics, the cumulative case method. Yeah, and the cumulative case um, is different than the other two because the other two uh, take either, in the first case of the classical, usually some kind of deductive form of argument, whereas the evidentiary argument, evidential method is going to argue for uh, sort of an inductive case that says mm -hmm. this is the best way to explain the, the the evidence, and the cumulative case is is going to sort of piece things together more like a patchwork. Sometimes it's called the I think Richard Swinburne called it the ten leaky buckets method, where none of the arguments really holds water, but you put these different things together and they they build off each other and say, well, this is we're, we're we're piling up evidence here, and cumulatively, you've got to account for this stuff. And it sort of um, says this is a superior way of accounting for whatever evidence exists than other exactly. ways of accounting, all right? Yeah, it's looking for overall explanatory power yeah. um, uh, of, of the, the evidence and of the world in general. Yeah. Okay. And um, it says this one has more explanatory power than other right. alternative ways of accounting for this. Right. Um, and then the fourth, uh, fourth out of five is the uh, presuppositional method. What's that one? 
Yeah, this is mostly uh, a Calvinist, comes out of a Calvinist, conservative Calvinism, um, and the Reformed tradition. And it actually sounds a little bit like the method that you described that Mormons uh, take when they assume God uh-huh. and, then, and then argue. But this presupposes that uh, the God of Christianity is, uh, well, exists. And then works from there sort of deductively or what they call a transcendental argument to say that nothing else could be explained without that. Uh-huh. Um, and so we wouldn't know anything if, 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 if God doesn't exist and, and things like that. So, um, so God's like the first principle, uh, exactly. a condition of knowledge. Exactly. In order to have knowledge, some first principle must exist. Therefore, it is God yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the final one, the fifth one, is the Reformed epistemology method, and and these, you know, that's a nice, funny word. What's what's this one? Yeah, and that's obviously Calvinist in its origin as well, um, and it is a little bit like the presuppositional method, except it's much more overtly uh, philosophical and, in particular, analytic in its philosophy, and it comes largely out of the work of Alvin Plantinga, but also his his cohort. Um, Nicholas Walterstorff, they sort of pioneered this uh, epistemology in the, the early 80s, 1980s, and these guys were highly trained and extremely gifted analytic philosophers who were working in major uh, university philosophy departments, and they are very good epistemologists. And what they did is they argued that belief in God, and this was coming, you know, sort of just past the heyday of, you know, verificationism and logical positivism, where, you know, when they were in school, that's what they were being taught, that, you know, talk about God is cognitively meaningless because it's non-verifiable and, and so on and so forth. And, and mm-hmm. they started with their Christian, uh, specifically Calvinist assumptions that say, yes, God does exist. How is that un how is that not meaningful? Because it seems to be work meaningful to a large number of human beings throughout history. And so they formulate a, an epistemology that, that says, well, belief in God is rational, even if a given person has no evidence to support that. Um, and the way they do it is by looking at the theory of knowledge itself. And the basic outline of that is you start by asking, well, what makes, makes something knowledge? And the primary way that that's done, and they actually argue that the best way to do it, or the only way to do it, is in terms of a, a epistemology that's foundationalist, so that there are some beliefs that we accept basically, and we do so without evidence, but we do so rationally, and then from there we build on those beliefs to non-basic beliefs, which are then evidenced and based on those beliefs. Okay. And they say belief in God is properly a basic belief. Okay. Okay. Um, now, one element that seems to be that we that you didn't mention in, in all these descriptions is the the strictly uh, reactive or defensive mode of apologetics. And how would that fit in? And this is the idea that, <clears throat> excuse me, that that Christians, the Christianity is criticized, and then in order, you know, those criticisms must be answered. So, like, how how would that fit into this overall uh, five five point structure? Um. Well, there there tends to be a distinction in apologetics between negative apologetics and positive apologetics. Mm-hmm. 
Negative apologetics is defensive. Reformed epistemology tends to be almost completely negative in its approach uh, because it's not trying to tell you that atheism is false, but mm -hmm. that Christ Christianity is rational. Um, and then positive apologetics wants to say this is positively rational and anything else fails rationality, so you must believe it. But the interesting thing, as you pointed out, is that these arguments sort of depend on there being a, a backdrop against which the questions have to emerge in the first place as to whether or not Christianity is viable. So they all kind of share that as a common backdrop. Okay, okay. So, so if you had to sum up, when you talk about the end of apologetics in your book, if you had to sum up sort of the common core of what defines apologetics, what would that be? Well, apologetics, as, I, as I'm against it in the book, is specifically modern apologetics. Um, and by that I mean that the kinds of questions that apologists are responding to are coming out of a worldview that is modern or modernist, if you want to say it that way. Um, and so this modernist paradigm, if I can use that word, is one that's shaped by Enlightenment epistemology. And they, they demand absolute certainty and are looking at human belief completely in terms of the, well, the criteria for rationality are those that are uh, operating with a very specific enlightenment understanding of human reason, which is going to be foundational and absolute and disconnected from the kinds of things that are standards in, in pre-modern worldview would be allowable. Okay. Um, so, can you can can you conceive of any sort of a, a, of technically apologetic approaches that that you wouldn't discourage, or any something that you could technically call apologetics, but that you don't see as falling under this sort of the criticism that we'll go on to talk about a little bit more uh, as we proceed. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against apologetics in its sort of basic form, and that's sort of answering the question that someone has about whether or not Christianity is intellectually viable or something or so you know maybe somebody says well it's absolute rubbish to say that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead I think a proper response would be well, why would you say that that doesn't seem like rubbish to me um, and then engage in a conversation about why it is that you believe that and be able to articulately and intelligently uh, say why you think that Jesus rose from the dead I have no problems with that kind of thing okay it's Oh, sorry. Yeah. And, no. Yeah. Well. And we'll we'll get more into that. That's that's a good preliminary clarification. Um. I think one of the most important elements of your overall book, uh, the end of apologetics, is the way that you pay close attention to the cultural contexts in which Christian faith is being discussed. So, you're arguing that context matters. So, the context in which arguments are happening, um, can can affect the way that the arguments themselves happen. And, and, and for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the history then, sort of the rise of enlighten of the, the the enlightenment and rationality and how the rise of what we now call the enlightenment impacted the way that, that Christians uh, understand their faith. So we'll talk about the enlightenment and then kind of into this more secular age. Uh, let's let's talk briefly about that uh, historical change. Sure. Something happens very distinct and dramatically in the Enlightenment, even though it might not necessarily be something everyone notices. But 
the way we start to understand ourselves and the world shifts dramatically so that even how we uh, think about human reason is something fundamentally different than it was before the Enlightenment. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. It's not like there was a light switch that was flipped on, but uh, I really like how Charles Taylor puts it in his book, A Secular Age, where he says, listen, if we go back to the 16th century and look at, at that society, belief in God was, disbelief in God was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. you, you, at least not in the modern sense of, I have no idea whether or not there is a, a being greater than myself that exists or, or human beings that exist in the, in the universe. Um, you had to work really hard at trying to not believe in God. Whereas today, uh, the opposite is true. Um, believing in God might not be impossible, but it certainly is is almost counterintuitive. It's not the thing that you would naturally expect one to believe growing up the way we do in our, as you said, secular age. So how's, how is the modern public sphere conceived of in, in, in a secular age? Well, and that's the thing. One of the things that happened, well, in the move from uh, pre-modernity to modernity, there is a, a, a concerted effort to shake off the shackles of superstition and tradition and the, the different forms of authority that come along with the modern worldview. Um, and this happens across the board in society, and it doesn't happen the same in every sector in society, but it happens across the board, so in religion, in politics, etc., there is this concerted effort to move away from the inherited forms of authority for belief and practice and to ground uh, in this new age of enlightenment uh, our beliefs and practices in, for lack of a better word, human reason. And to do so in such a way that they become rational and scientific. Mm -hmm. So science sort of replaces tradition and God. And so what happens is there, there, there has to change, the, the way we view the world has to change completely. And in the pre-modern world, these things all sort of come together. There is no sort of distinction between public and private. And, and that's something that one has to create in modernity in order to, to isolate a sphere that's neutral and a, a place where um, political authority, civil authority, and religious authority uh, can't sort of contaminate our beliefs or our, our, our thought structures. So it's basically – so it's an age where human reason is, is privileged to sort of delve in and, and solve the mysteries and, and beliefs should, should uh, measure up to a certain standard of rationality and, in order to be acceptable, right? So it's this – sort of expectations sure. about what truths can be. And, and if, if something doesn't measure up to that standard, then it's um, seen as superstitious or, or sort of out of bounds. And, and belief in God has increasingly kind of fallen into that category. Yeah, and I, and I think it's really important to emphasize the to a certain standard part of what you said, mm -hmm. because the certain standard is this understanding of human reason as foundationally important and as capable of understanding and grasping the most important things in the universe, so that there's this assumption made about the adequacy of 
human reason and understanding to sort of plumb the depths of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and arrive at absolute truths about these things. Right. And so, and, and now in your, the, the subtitle to your book, um, Christian witness in a postmodern context sort of points to a shift even in, in this secular age. We're in an era of, of what some philosophers refer to as postmodernism. And I want to explore that for a minute, what exactly you mean by postmodernism. Some people are inclined to, to understand it as a denial of any sort of foundational truth claims or that they're a, a, an explicit denial that there are any foundational truths uh, or um, that it's entirely relativistic and this sort of thing. But, but you're pretty specific in anticipating those types of, of objections as to what, what you mean by postmodernism. So I, I hope you can um, sort of clarify what you mean by, by being in a postmodern context. Yeah, well, it, when I talk about postmodernity, at least in terms that apply to me, I'm not sure I can control how other people want to use the word. But all I mean by postmodernism is our being aware of ourselves as modern. And what that means is it relativizes where we are culturally located as moderns. In other words, this is an option that we have opted for as opposed to the inevitable result of human achievement and progress. Um, so what that does say is we might not be at the acme of, of human progress. It might just be that the, that we, we chose a road and there are other alternatives. And once you start to be aware of yourself as modern, then it opens you up or frees you up to saying, well, what does it mean to be modern? And you start asking that question as opposed to, well, this is exactly the way it, things have to be. Um, and so we just are sort of trapped in our current cultural logic and we can't get out of it. You're, and you're pretty specific. I mean, I have a quote here where you say um... – you say, I do not deny that there is a real world that exists independently of human minds or suggest we never encounter reality. I don't think, for instance, that all we ever experience are our own thoughts. Um, so right. expand on that. Yeah, and so, I mean, often this is uh, one way, as you already highlighted, of disparaging postmodern, the move to postmodernity and the, or the acceptance and embrace of it is that, well, postmoderns don't believe in absolute truth and they're relativists and they don't believe in a real world because they believe that lang everything is language and so on and so forth. And that's just simply not true. Um, what postmoderns uh, of the sort that, I, that I'm talking about believe is that the grasp that, that we have of the world in language isn't absolute. It's contingent, and the perspectives that we occupy aren't perspectives that are, are all-seeing and all-knowing, uh, and we never get to the bottom of anything, and so language mediates the world to us, and the symbols and the categories that we use uh, function as perspectives on the world. But what I don't mean by that is that we don't, there isn't a real world out there and that all we ever encounter are our own thoughts. I think we encounter the world through language, through symbols, and so on that we have that enable us to function in the world. Um, in fact, I'd like to turn that argument around and say, if it weren't the case, we would never know there is a real world. So they become the conditions for the possibility of having the experience of the world, real world. So I, I, I just don't 
many times you'll see especially uh, certain kinds of Christian apologists trying to debunk post-modernity as you know sheer relativism and the, the belief that's almost solipsistic you know all we have are our own minds mm -hmm. and, and that's just simply unintelligible to me yeah that's that's not that's not your position that's the impression I get from the book then is basically just an assertion of epistemic humility when you when you say right. we're aware of where we are so we're aware of the limitations of human reason and I think this is where you really come come to to a head against some of some of the Christian apologists that you that you talk about so we'll we'll talk about you mentioned William Lane Craig he's he's a prominent Christian uh, apologist a very very smart guy an excellent debater uh, and and he he's I think he senses that that there are some some uh, some problems maybe with uh, with taking his own approach too far and and this this anxiety I think shows up in the distinction he makes between uh, knowing something versus showing something so uh, let's talk about that for a second what what's the distinction that that William Lane Craig makes between knowing and showing yeah um, and I think I really. Before I go on to answer your question, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about the anxiety that he exhibits, because there's a definite underlying sense of anxiety that one gets that he's trying to quell as he as he goes through his his uh, apologetic methodology and, and his apologetics themselves. But um, he talks about this distinction between knowing and showing, which for him, he, he doesn't say it was revealed to him by God, but it was certainly an aha moment at very least where it seems that suddenly the truth was revealed to him about how things really are. Um, and he says that there's this distinction between knowing Christianity is true and showing it to be true. Apologetics functions in the latter, showing part, mm -hmm. but it, it isn't necessarily part of the knowing part. So what he wants to say is that believers can know in their hearts through the testimony of the Holy Spirit that Christianity is true and he does actually, if he draws this out into a full epistemology, doesn't want to say you can know a lot of things that way. But there are certain things that you can know that way, and that for the rest of it, you need apologetics um, to show someone else. Mm -hmm. So, and for him, it's really important to me, and ultimately it is to him as well, that these are both, first of all, epistemological categories, and they're ways of describing the rationality of Christian belief that ties into the standards of rationality that I was speaking of earlier. So these are ways of showing us or, or, or articulating Christian belief so that it is rational and meets the, the, the standards of rationality laid out for beliefs in modernity. So where, where the Holy would he Spirit is an epistemological agent. Right, so is that where that, he would house... Knowing would be something that the Holy Spirit would would communicate to the believer. Is that where the yes. knowing comes from? Because in, it's same yeah. in Mormonism, is the idea that, that the Holy Ghost is what what uh, confirms truth, um, yeah. and, and that's different from what he would say then is, is showing, right? So he would house that ability to know in revelation to a believer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and that's an epistemic process uh -huh. that fits into his his wider epistemology. Okay, so you see modern apologetics as, as, despite this distinction, it's still thoroughly modern in approach. And, and the way yeah. that you sum it up is with this acronym OUNCE, O-U-N-C-E. So talk about OUNCE and how that sort of sums up how you uh, read uh, this modern apologetic project. Yeah, um, OUNCE, as you mentioned, stands for Objective, Universal, and Neutral. And th those are sort of the three 
primary criteria that are used to uh, judge whether a given belief is is uh, rational or not. And so, because that's sort of his main anxiety, right? Like he wants to say, this is a rational belief. These are the ways by which you can tell that it's a rational belief. Exactly, exactly. So for a belief to be rational, it has to be objective, mm -hmm. neutral, and universal. It has to be the kind of thing that everybody anywhere could access. It has to be the kind of thing that is free from subjective bias, and it has to be the kind of thing that is completely neutral um, about uh, any of these other forms of influence. And so it, it, it operates as this objective standard by which everything is judged. There, there's a really great quote, actually, that um, that segues well with that here um, in your book. It says, uh, according to this modern sense, what is essential to being a Christian is an objective event, the cognitive acceptance, a belief, of specific propositions or doctrines. So, you know, being a Christian is about accepting certain propositions or doctrines. And because Christianity is essentially objective in this way, it's propositional, it can and must have an objective basis or a rational foundation that complies with ounce. So this is this is sort of the fundamental expectation then is that Christianity has Christianity is about accepting these certain propositions and in order for a proposition to be true, it has to be objective, neutral, universal and this sort of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. The thing that fascinates me is how this this critique actually uh, cuts against uh, liberal and conservative uh, views here. This is where your book really surprised me. It, it cuts both ways. You see theological liberals, the stereotype of them is that they're willing to sort of put Christianity on the procrustean bed and cut off the you know, the limbs and everything to make it fit. So they're just willing to sort of jettison things that aren't rational, like, oh, the miracles in the New Testament? Oh, that's... No, none of that happened, right? They're willing to sacrifice certain things according to modern rational standards. Right. And then conservatives who who do the opposite, they sort of adopt modern rational um, standards to argue for even the miracles and even these sorts of things. So both of both these liberal and conservative perspectives are acceding too much to the modernist mindset, right? For sure. Um, they They... Yeah, the one thing that this also connects to the discussion that we had about what postmodernism is. Most people just assume that postmodernism is progressive liberal. Yeah. And that drives me nuts <laughs> because while definitely I'm against some really uh, deeply ingrained conservative impulses that come out of the modern mindset, I'm just as against, in, in fact, at times it depends on the context, even more against the liberal idea that that the human being and the rational experience of a human being is the standard for truth and, mm -hmm. and that's really i think the major issue that i have with apologetics on both sides whether the rational apologetic project of liberals which is to sort of weed out everything from christian doctrine that isn't rational or the conservative one that is to sort of demonstrate how all of it from orthodoxy which is defined very particularly by whatever group is trying to do the proving, um, you know, that all of it is rational, but both of them are making the human rationality of the modern sort, the rock bottom basis of reality, which 
I think is fundamentally idolatrous. Right. I, I think this is actually a way that can cut against some people who criticize apologetics. Uh, you know, there are critics of certain ap- apologetic approaches that say that it's not rational enough or that it, it you know, that it's not um, academic enough or that it's pseudo scholarship and these types of criticisms. And and the I think what I think you would say that the problem with those criticisms is like the apologetics that it criticizes. It's it's sort of putting putting too big of a stake in in human rationality and and, and humans ability to access this objective truth, right? Yes, and it's also completely um, over uh, well overlooking its own position and and thinking that it stands on a ground that it doesn't actually stand on that, yeah. that it, it, you know, so. Okay. So, and then before we move to the second part of the podcast, which we'll talk more specifically about your own proposals, because you don't just say do away with apologetics. You also um, talk about things that the Christians can do uh, to witness right. effectively. So we'll move on to that. Before we do that though, toward the end of the book, you talk about apologetic violence. And um, so without going into too much detail about your own view of how to properly witness to Christianity. Uh, can you speak for a moment about what you mean by apologetic violence? Because it's a, you know, it's, it's a strong word to use. Yeah. Do you want me to get into it in detail or just sort of generally? Uh, just, just kind of generally. And then if I have any follow-up, we'll, we'll go that way. Yeah. I mean, generally apologetic violence is when we use our arguments to do things that are unchristian, mean-spirited and wrong and unethical to other people. Um, and that's the bottom line. So what I don't assume is that an argument that is has a valid form with a true conclusion and the conclusion somehow fits or connects to you know, what Christians are supposed to believe, that using that argument in any circumstance is therefore always right. I don't assume that because we can use any words and any arguments to do things that are very unloving and unchristian. So... We can use good, quote-unquote, apologetic arguments to do very wrong, mean, and violent things to other people and tear them down. Is this just like uh, insulting people, or like what, what sort of things are you talking about? Well, in particular, I'm to, to make them feel small, to demean them, to, make them, to tell them that, that they're worthless or, or unreasonable or not as smart as me or irrational or whatever – those using apologetic arguments to do that, I think, is 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 a form of violence against them. I mean, there there can be when you get into arguments and discussions, there can there, you can get to a point where you you take sort of glee in 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 showing how someone else's argument is is dumb, right? I mean, you can for sure almost get sarcastic or uh, you know. It can become an argument. It's, the irony then would be that that you might be saying true things. You might be saying, you know, Christ is Lord or, or whatever you're saying, but you, you could be saying it in a way that that communicates completely the opposite message, right? Yeah, and where your intentions are to do that. Yeah. And most often we're blind to it ourselves because we just get carried away by the force of our own brilliance or or fundamental rectitude and we just think that we have the right of way to do whatever we like because we're right. If that's how we're feeling, the chances are we're probably acting in a way that's deeply unchristian. Yeah. Well, um, I've done that, so. <laughs> yeah, so, so have I. Yeah. <laughs> 
just to uh, issue a confession here. Um, so, yeah. so kind of to sum up the the this first part of the podcast, then just just give a, a brief recap of some of the key problems that you see with with much of, of modern Christian apologetics. Well, the fundamental problem with it, modern apologetics, is it doesn't give us the ability to address what I find the deepest spiritual problem with modernity, and that's the fundamental nihilism or meaninglessness that comes in a world where God is superfluous. Um, And the big problem is that for apologetics that buys into the modern paradigm is that it, it, it so thoroughly is immersed in that paradigm that it has no ability to argue outside of itself. So it, it buys into the meaninglessness of the universe, tries to argue on those terms that there's meaning, and in the end it just sort of perpetuates the nihilism of modernity. And we haven't really addressed that aspect of the argument. But to me, that that's the real problem, is that that's the betrayal, is, is it's buying into the sort of death of God, as we sometimes refer to it, that happens in modernity when reason takes the place that God used to, to take in, in pre-modernity. Um, by chance, have, have you read Richard Beck's uh, Authenticity of Faith? I have not, but it's, it's, I'm aware of it. Yeah, so it's sort of similar. I mean, he, he basically talks about apologetics failing on rhetorical grounds or failing on the grounds of not addressing sort of the the, the more crucial existential issue that you mentioned, which is living in an era when people feel disconnected from God and meaning and purpose, or they feel um, spiritual malaise, and, and there are people who are looking for something. And, and you know, if, if they start to read basic apologetics, it just seems like this, these arguments that are going on, it's, it's not really spiritually fulfilling. It's just, um, you know, just these back and forths about who's right they and who's like, wrong, right? And they feel like parlor games. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and okay. I, I, I absolutely agree with that now on the other hand there is one thing i would say is like um do you have do you have any sense that that at least for some people the sort of apologetic approaches that you criticize for example you talk about a debate that occurred at a college um that where uh, an atheist showed up to debate a, a christian apologist and they took a vote at the end and the christian apologist was sort of the victor and, and you realize that most yeah. of the people that attended were already believers and um, but do you think do you think there are some people there who it still might have maybe maybe caused to think twice and and can can it still be an avenue? Can this method that you criticize still be an avenue for some Christians to to find Christ even even indirectly? Um, well, for sure, I don't want to put limits on God's ability to redeem anything. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, he uses Balaam's ass to uh, <laughs> communicate his word. And so he can use whatever he wants, yeah. uh, including, including this donkey. <laughs> but um, I don't think that's necessarily the way he always wants to speak. And it doesn't certainly doesn't absolve us of the ability to be the prophetic witness that, that Balaam was supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? That God has called us to be. So. Okay. Um, I'm not trying to address the question of whether it's salvageable in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. I would point out, though, that it can do even more harm, and I think this is part of what Kierkegaard is getting at, when people think they've been helped by it precisely because it helps them to fall or sink further into their delusion about who they are and where where they are. 
and what they're all about. So, and like and human and the power of of yeah, rationality for sure. and this sort so of thing. So if they so if they walk away thinking, yeah, I really am that clever. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's a help. They might yeah. feel better, but I'm not sure they've been edified by it. Okay, so so that kind of sums up part one. Um, moving into part two, then we'll we'll talk about your um, about your alternatives that you talk about, and I think the title of the book, "The End of Apologetics," can be read in in a double sense. I I wrote this in a, in a little review. Um, earlier, uh, that the end of apologetics can talk about the cessation of a type of apologetics, but it can also mean that you're focusing on the end or the telos, the end, the objective of apologetics, the goal of apologetics, the 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 end game of apologetics, and it's sort of a, a meditation on that. You're <laughs> absolutely correct, by the way, to read it that way, and I, yeah, okay, good. I, I completely, you, you got it. Okay, excellent. Um, Okay, so there's a quote here that I want to read that, that, I'll, that I'll have you sort of uh, talk about here. It says, one of the serious problems for modern apologetics is that it treats Christianity as if it were an objective something, a set of propositions or doctrines that can be explained, proven, and cognitively mastered. Kierkegaard's favorite response is to point out that being a Christian is far less a matter of knowing the truth than that of becoming the truth, that is, of being truly rather than thinking truly. So that the truth is expressed in a fully integrated life before God. Christianity, then, is much more a way or an invitation to live in the truth than it is a doctrine or a set of beliefs whose truth we can grasp and cognitively master. Okay, so so this kind of points to your alternative, then. Christianity is more of a way of being than, than a series of propositions. So I, I like the sentiment here. I think one of the responses might be, and you have a footnote here, um, Christianity does have propositional content, right? It, the apostles in the mm-hmm. New Testament make propositional claims about Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus' ability to reconcile hum- humans with God, and these types of things. So it seems like there's sort of a fundamental tension here where you talk about Christianity as being more of a way of becoming, but there's also there also is propositional content to it, right? So maybe explore that tension for a minute. Well, for sure. And... Um, the way I'm trying to emphasize it here is not that there are no doctrines, but what is the role and nature of those doctrines, and why do we have them, and why should we hold to them? What I'm trying to say is we shouldn't, well, first of all, that they aren't the point. The point is not that we all have this sort of objectively agreed upon set of things that we all say and then we all do it at the appropriate time. We, we kneel, we bow, etc. Um, and I, and I do somewhere in the book, I can't remember now off the top of my head, but I do reference somewhere in a discussion about this, you know, what the apostle James says in the book of James, when he says, you believe there is one God good. Mm-hmm. So do the demons and they're, they're frightened. <laughs> yeah, right. But, that doesn't mean that they are somehow more in the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have often said in conversation and in the classroom that, you know, it's entirely possible. In fact, it's plausible that the demonic world has better doctrine than all the rest of us because they probably know a few things that the rest of us don't. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not what saves them. Or, or damns them, right? Um, that That's not the primary issue. Now, it's not completely irrelevant, but it's not the primary thing. So it's a question of, well, what role do doctrines play then? Are they indicators that we're in the truth, or are they 
simply uh, categories by which we are to live then. And I think that's probably more of what they're supposed to be. They're, they're supposed to be reflective of realities that uh, um, are then to be appropriated by us and structure our lives and our understanding in ways that, that change who we are. Mm-hmm. You, you point to hermeneutics as a way of, of analyzing or understanding Christianity. Hermeneutics is sort of the interpretation of texts, right? So this probably grows out of your interest in, in postmodernism. And I think what you describe it as is a shift from our focus from like what's true and justified towards what's intelligible and meaningful. Yes. Um, but but can't people find like just about anything meaningful, right? It's It seems to sort of leave people unrooted. Well, it it does if if you think of them something that's meaningful in a completely subjective sense, uh, and so we think, for instance, of happiness as this interior state that I access through introspection, and it becomes this state of, you know, whether or not I have more serotonin in my cerebral cortex mm-hmm. or not. Um, but when I talk about meaning, I don't mean feeling meaning you know, whether it feels meaningful. I'm talking about whether or not it's something that um, is connected to a a wider vision of life and the good. So it's going to have a historical dimension to it and it's going to have a dimension about that includes human flourishing and so on. And so I'm I'm not just simply saying in a subjective sense, well, do I feel like that was really nice? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about meaningful in a much, rich, a much richer sense of meaning. I think the difficulty there, like when, when we use postmodernism as an ally to to underscore the idea that human reason is fallible or that even just relying on pure emotion isn't the way, like there's a biblical witness that, that we have to be attuned to. I think, I think a lot of people sort of in a skeptical society already have an implicit regard for scientific enterprise and objectivity. And despite the turn to postmodernity in the higher academy, I think most people still think about things in terms of things being objective and like able to verify. So is that a problem for your approach then? Because you're shifting the conversation. Um, so do you sense pushback from that other direction of the people who think of themselves as being very sophisticated and scientific minded and they see your approach as being like wishy-washy or, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um in fact, I moderated a debate, which was an interesting thing, between a theist and an atheist. <laughs> and, of course, I ended up getting fired from both sides. But the, <laughs> the atheist kept calling me a science denier, which I'm not at all. I just don't think science tells us what's truly important about the universe. I don't think it tells us nothing. I think it, it gives us models for how to think about the universe, for sure, and how to be successful in certain kinds of ways if those are the things that we want to do. Um, and certainly, I guess what I would like to tell people who are captivated by science, and I think you're absolutely right, that's kind of like the way we think, is that perhaps the realities that we access that way and that we're st- staking all of our hopes on aren't the ones that are most important and that we're missing something profound. And you can point to other aspects of our culture that seem to be verifying that, like uh, the meaninglessness that we all feel and the sense that you know, it, it, this really can't be all that there is, and so on, and, and say, well, you know, that that experience that we have is connected to the way we look at the world through the scientific lens. So, 
with that in mind, then, how, how would you say that Christian beliefs can be verified? Like, how, how would you approach someone who says, like, well, you know, I, I read Richard Dawkins' book, and I read uh, Daniel Dennett, and, and they're very convincing, and I'm just not really interested in God. Why should I pay attention to the claims of Christianity? Like, what sort of response? I know you'd respond to an individual person, like, you would make it a personal engagement, but what sort of mm-hmm. things would you do to, to talk to that type of a person? Um, well, I appeal to them as people, as persons, probably not as people in the generic sense of a group of people, but as a person and say, um, I just don't, I, I can't make sense of the world and find it meaningful the way that you're trying to draw that out. And so I'd want to talk to them about why, what's so particularly appealing about the universe as, as Richard Dawkins wants to imagine it. Um, and maybe point out along the way that he is imagining things and sometimes he's making things up and mm-hmm. that the thing that he seems so absolutely certain about maybe isn't quite as certain as they think and maybe they've been duped or trapped in a, in a, a particular way of thinking that isn't helpful um, to them as a person. So I, I try to find out where they are as persons, what's motivating them, what, what kinds of things they think they're getting from from Richard Dawkins that that is so particularly helpful and just explore that with him. And and I might get to the point where uh, I don't know what to do with that person except tell them that I, uh, that personally this this isn't fulfilling and meaningful to me because of the experience I have with God and Jesus Christ. But that's not going to be particularly helpful for them maybe. So what would your suggestion be? I mean, you sort of point to witnessing about your way of life as well, like Christianity bears fruits in your life um, in terms yeah. of peace and, 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 you know, these types of things, and, and that's sort of part of a witness. What about, what about people who don't feel like they can witness with such surety, right? They, they might encounter a conversation like that and just say, you know, I can't stand up in front of somebody and tell them that I really know this stuff about God. I have faith in it. I believe in it, but... Uh, this isn't something I can just like declare. Like, what what would your advice be to, to people who feel that way? To say that that sometimes, as C.S. Lewis once said about his atheism, sometimes he woke up in the morning and his atheism didn't seem very certain. Tell them that's what's true about me and my relationship with God, and it goes up and down, and I don't know what to do, and I, I wrestle with this stuff every day. And if you're feeling these kinds of feelings and having these kinds of thoughts, I completely understand where you're at because I live there a lot of days too. Mm. I I think that's entirely appropriate and important and necessary if that's really true. The point is don't tell them something about God that isn't a lived reality in your life. There's so much more um, that I'd like to talk to you about. Unfortunately, we're we're running short on time. Um, Maybe we can, can get a blog post with you or something in the future to talk about things like when you talk about the role of irony in Christian witnessing, and um, right, and and an agonistic approach to uh, mm-hmm. to discussing faith and, and apocalyptic apologetics. There are all the sorts of great things in the book. I I really recommend that people pick up the book. It's uh, the End of Apologetics by Myron Penner. But before we go, then there's one more thing I, I'd like to cover, and it's this distinction you make between appealing to people rather than coercing people, uh, and I. So I'd, I'd like you to sort of explore the difference. When you're talking to someone about your faith, you make a crucial distinction between appealing uh, or coercing. Yeah, and it, it has everything to do with 
why we're in this conversation or in this encounter and what we want to come out of it. Um, and um, my, my suggestion, my insistence, is that we need to be in these kinds of conversations or encounters because we care deeply about persons and that we're concerned about their edification as persons. And so when we are in these kinds of interpersonal encounters, then our goal needs to, build, needs to be to build that person up. And when we try to coerce someone, uh, the French philosopher Gabriel Marcel says that when we try to coerce someone, or when someone tries to coerce us, they forget or they pretend to forget that we're actually persons. Hmm. They forget what it is that we actually desire and want in our particular location and where we are at with life and things in general. And they just say, this is where you should be, go there. And they push us in that direction either physically or cognitively or whatever, emotionally. Um, whereas appeal is exactly the opposite. It takes stock of who the person is and what their position is, where they are at and say, I think this is what you want and this could help you become that or to go there. And it, it, he uses the word sympathy, this, uh, this taking into account who the other person is and this identification with their overall well-being. And we make that as important to us as our own well-being. And when we do that, we appeal to the person and say, I believe this is something that would be very helpful to you as opposed to this is something you must believe if you don't and you fit into this category and if you do then you'll be in the one that I accept. I just right. find that last way of thinking really, really unhelpful. Yeah, so like on the one side appealing, the focus is on the person and the, the goal is edification, right? You use the word edification. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, if the focus is on coercing, or if, 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 the, if the method is coercive, the focus is on the person's beliefs specifically. So you can, oh, it's, it's, this isn't personal. I'm just you know, talking about the things you believe. Exactly. Uh, and, but, and the end game is justification rather than edification, right? Yeah, and the key is to see beliefs as reflective of personal existential realities, not just simply abstract cognitive events that yeah. are loosely connected to me somehow. Okay, so in, in closing, do you have time to just share that? There's a story that you tell about a person who encountered a couple of apologists in college, and, and, and I think the person was kind of an atheist. And Do you have a, a one second to sort of share that in closing? Sure. I think it's sure. a really good um, concrete example of the kind of uh, problems that, we, that we've talked about. Yeah, um, this was actually... Uh, postgraduate. It was while I was doing research for my PhD and uh, I was at a study center and uh, I'll call him John. It's not his real name, but I haven't got permission. I haven't asked him for permission to use this story because I've lost track of him. But um, he and I got to the study center early because it was uh, just as the academic year was ending here in North America. And so he and I were at the study center, and I got to know him a bit. He described himself as an atheist Roman Catholic, and so he and I, uh, you know, hung out a bit and got to know each other. Had a really good time, uh, you know, getting to know each other. And I found out that he had been to uh, on two different occasions into to monasteries looking for God, and that he really lost something important to him when he lost his childhood faith, and he was just trying to find a way to believe in God. 
And I can still remember one time we were walking down by the river and he just looked at me and said, you really believe it all, don't you? And I was like, we weren't talking about anything religious. We were just kind of walking, chatting about stuff. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you really believe that, you know, Jesus was God's son and he died on the cross. You, really, you believe all that, don't you? And I was like kind of shocked. And it's not typical of philosophers to ask direct questions like that. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, you know, you should be a priest. And this was before I was even thinking of it. Hmm. And it, he said, we need priests like that. And I was like, what are you talking about, John? You, you don't even, you said you don't even believe in God. So I, I knew that, that John was on a real deep spiritual quest. And, and then we were joined uh, by two seminarians who had just taken uh, an apologetics seminar. Actually, it was with Bill Craig. I didn't say that in the book. Um, and Bill Craig had described himself as the hired gun who comes in to sort of clean up the streets <laughs> of all the atheists. And um, we were sitting out on the back deck in the evening, which is what uh, the group of us tended to do. And, and I knew these guys, where they were coming from quite well, because I was raised in that, that whole context. And they started asking John questions. And it, he didn't clue in at first as to what they were doing and they were trying to find what he believed about different things and and then they were building what his position must be and they started saying well if you say that then don't you also have to think that and at some point he started realizing what they were doing mm -hmm. and he stopped them he said hey guys stop 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 I don't like what you're doing here you are starting to really offend me because you're you're trying to treat me as if this is all an abstract, uh, objective game. And I was just answering your questions and being honest with you. And they said, we don't care if you're offended. We don't want your blood on our head. And they just started going at him. And I was like shocked. And I jumped in with, on one side, or John's side, and I started saying, you know, um, I think he's actually a better Christian than you guys are. <laughs> and he, John told me the next day, because I, I, uh, I got so upset with him, I just went, went to bed. And uh, John told me the next day that uh, they told him they didn't think I was a real Christian. And <laughs> it's Christ-like. That's, that's what Jesus yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, I mean, it kind of shows a distinction. And, and you know, not, not all apologists. I mean, there, I, think, I think we can both agree there, there are people who do classic apologetics or this sort of modern apologetics who, you know, th they're doing this out of faith. They're doing this for, sure. uh, for good reasons. The, the issue becomes one of, of approach. And when, when you begin to approach it in terms of these logical categories that you can just lay out, uh, it can feel coercive to the people that you're talking about uh, or for talking sure. with. And, and that's sort of where you're saying that that's not edifying. You can't edify and rejoice together. That's right. Under those circumstances, whereas if you were having a, a real interpersonal conversation, um, you can kind of gauge it to the extent that that are we all are we all being edified here is sort of a good exactly. a good benchmark I think for that. But uh, anyway, I really appreciate you joining joining us today on on the Maxwell Institute podcast, Myron. This has been a great conversation, um, and uh, I, I hope to be in touch with you again, and maybe we can um, get get a blog post or two and. Well, thanks, Blair. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Maxwell Institute podcast. I was joined today by Dr. Myron Bradley Penner. He's the author of The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context. 
Be sure to check out the Maxwell Institute blog post for this episode. I've included some links to some of the sources that we talked about. That's maxwellinstituteblog.org. You can email questions or comments about this episode to me. That address is blairhodges at byu.edu. Oh, uh-huh.